You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Turning to the Mystics. We're in Season 2 and Turning to the Mystics' Sanctuaries of Avila. I'm here with Jim and we're going to be reflecting on his Lexio on Mansion 5 from the Interior Castle. Well, where I wanted to start was I get so confused about the way different people use the term the soul. And, um, and I think the way Teresa uses it and the way you're using it is very specific. So I wondered if you could define that. Yes. For us. You know, the word soul in the Christian tradition, say especially in the Christian uh, tradition of, the, uh, you know, the kind of philosophical theology of the Middle Ages through Aquinas and Augustine and Bonaventure and Scotus and those people, and then how it carries over into the mystics has different meanings. For example, uh, Aquinas following Aristotle says that the soul is, a, is the principle of animate matter. So, for example, plants have a soul because there's an, a principle, and they, they have a movement from within. They have a vegetative soul. You know? And then likewise, animals has a, have a sensate soul, dogs and cats and so on, because they're alive, the soul. Mm-hmm. And that for, for Aristotle, too, that, that soul was immaterial. It was ontological. It was the being person. And then for the human person that has a rational soul, the soul to think, to reflect the intellectual interior life, the subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And in uh, our age, today, when we use soul, we tend to speak of a person being soulful, as in deeply felt. I, I'm speaking from the depths of my soul, you know, mm-hmm. kind of intimate. We think that. So uh, it's good to clarify what she means by it. And I also then think with John of the Cross and the other mystics. In these classical texts mean by soul. To me, one way of putting it is what she means by soul is that the soul refers to the mystery of who we are as persons created by God in the image and likeness of God is our soul. That, that, that when, when, when the, the God creates us as persons in the image and likeness of God and that God-given godly nature of ourselves, that kind of divine stature of ourselves as persons, is our soul. This is so, and we might say in in in, in social justice and so on. See, that's the innate value of the helpless, the innate value of the of the of the infant, of the elderly, the poor. That the the fact a person is impaired in their ability to function doesn't lessen their essential dignity. It's a spiritual dignity that they're a person. They're a person. And so the soul has to do with that sense of and faith that there's this godly, spiritual, innate value to all of us as our soul. Mm-hmm. When she speaks then of, she says, I'm now going to lead you into a journey through your own soul. And I'm wondering, and and so she says, you may say to me, well, since I am my soul, how can you lead me into a journey into my soul? 
And she says, understand, there's different meanings of what it, what it means to be in a place. So, for example, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm in my room here as I'm talking with you. You're in your room talking, and the people listening to this later are going to be where they are talking. So we're all in the place that we are. But the degree to which each of us is aware of and one with the far-reaching implications of what we're talking about as divine union varies greatly from person to person. So when she uses the word mansions or dwelling places, she's talking about the grace states of consciousness in which we're aware of and open to the God-given godly nature of our soul. Because she says some people don't even know they have a soul. That is, they're so trapped in the external demands of the of, of externality of life. It isn't until they're awakened to the interior. If my life has an outside, it must have an inside. And specifically, when for the first time, God becomes real to you. That is, my faith matters to me. That point at which it matters, you start to become conscious of your own soul. It was You, you always were your soul, but you weren't always conscious of your soul. And so she says, the first mansion is for beginners. She said, they do pray, but they don't pray well, and they don't pray often, and so on. So each of these mansions are kind of heightened, transformative degrees of conscious, realized oneness with and response to the mystery of our soul, which leads mm -hmm. into God in the hidden center of our soul, drawing us into union with himself. Can you explain how uh, thoughts, emotions physical the physicality of us and our thoughts and our emotions how what's the relationship between those parts of ourselves and the soul yes for teresa to, i want to use our language i'm going to use the term ego in our language and um the my understanding a basic understanding of ego because the school we're doing this because we're clarifying how we use these words you know yes. soul now ego i understand ego to mean our self-reflective bodily self in time and space in relationship with others and with the earth open to the mystery so my my our, our, my, my, my our ego is the thinking us the remembering us the desiring us the intellect the memory and the will it is the feeling us or a whole range of emotions it is the bodily sense awareness of our bodily sensations within our relationship to ourself, relationship to others, relationship to the earth. So God wants us to have a healthy ego. A lot of psychotherapy is the healing of the ego. Internalized traumas and abandonments, God wants us to have a healthy ego. Because if our ego isn't healthy, we suffer and other people suffer. And, um, and so the, 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 the issue then for Teresa is that the, the, the ego is also has the capacity to be open to the realization that we're living in a relationship with God and that God's in a relationship with us. And God's relationship with us is the reality of us. It's through faith. See, the ego is endowed with God with the capacity for faith, which is the gift of faith that transcends. It's out of the ego that we transcend the ego in this, the gift of faith of knowing that we're in this relationship with God, and then the freedom to assent to that, 
because love is always offered, it's never imposed. So what she's saying is when people don't even have a soul, it isn't just that their ego's wounded, as maybe through hurtful patterns and behaviors, internalized traumas, the things we do to each other. But we're also, it's the ego that's estranged from its openness to the transcendent. And so the first three mansions then refer to a graced awareness of our intellect, our memory, and our will, our senses, and how do we relate to these things in grounded, effective, and loving ways that are open to the presence of God in our life. And so the first three mansions then have to do with reflective prayer, Lexio Divina, discursive prayer, reflection, applying faith to daily life, and that's efficacious unto holiness. See, that's how God leads us on towards this union with God so that when we die and pass through the veil of death, we go into unmediated infinite union with the infinite. And that's the first three mansions holiness mm-hmm. with the with the fourth mansion it begins mystical experiences which means god doesn't wait until you're dead to begin to awaken you to god's oneness with you as the very reality of who you are you begin to get that first stirring and then the ego in being so awakened has to freely cooperate with that and we have to open ourselves to it and so on so in the we see in the fifth mansion We can then see as it moves deeper and deeper, the intellect is transcended. The thinking you and all that it thinks ceases because it's finite. It it cannot be, the finite self cannot be the foundation out of which an infinite union is realized because it's finite. Mm -hmm. And so the finite reflective self illumined by faith, because in the fourth mansion, you're in that twilight zone between the two. In the fifth mansion, the finiteness of the intellect ceases because it can't be the basis of what's now occurring. Mm-hmm. Memory ceases. Desire ceases. Sensation ceases. And it's a kind of a state in which the ego and reflective consciousness goes into kind of a deep sleep. So you're not there. So when the moment passes, it's an event that happens to you while you're praying. So when, it, when it's over, you don't know for sure whether anything happened because you weren't there. <laughs> but you know it because you're different. And that's what the mm-hmm. fifth mansion is really about. Is mm-hmm. What are the signs? We have this experience where we disappear from ourselves, even for a few moments. Mm-hmm. What are the signs by which we can discern that we're not the same as we were before that happened to us? And then cooperating with those signs is the fifth mansion. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, is it is it right to say that uh, when we when we die, we'll we'll no longer have the ego part of ourselves, so that but the soul will continue? Is that well? We believe in our faith that the that Jesus rose with his wounds, and so we believe in the, the mystery of the resurrection, the final resurrection. It's kind of a mythic, poetic way of the eternality of all of us, so that in the kingdom of God we'll remember who we were, we'll remember our relationships, there'll still be the the eternal reality of those things and God will continue. Mm. But it will continue as seen and understood with and as God's own mind. That Mm. is, we'll see the divinity of the ego, the divinity of the body, 
the divinity of this conversation we're having right now. Since, since God's knowing we're having this talk right now and God never forgets. When we die and go into God, we'll go into having this talk forever. <laughs> because everything is forever in God, but transcended and permeated as God's own consciousness of this. And that's what starts to happen in mystical states. You start to have God's consciousness of the life that you're living. See, God's consciousness of the life of everyone around you. God's love and so on. So in the end, it's not that our thoughts, memories, the way you describe the ego, the, the thinking self, the feeling self, in the end, it's not that they're separate from our soul. It's just they're not um, infused into the soul initially, is that? They're... they're there's like like evolving uh, states of the intellect, the memory, and the will are evolving thoughts, are evolving memories, are evolving feelings, and so on. And the reality of that, and so on, and so on, and so on. But what starts to happen, I want to use the example of falling deeply in love with somebody again, which is going to be key for Teresa and these nuptial mystics. So we fall in love with somebody. And in the depth of that love, when we try to explain to somebody in words mm. that do justice to who we know the person to be in our love for them, we can't do it. Mm. So it's in the ego where the ego is transcended through love see, yeah. and fulfilled through love see, in this qualitatively. Re so then she's saying, well, with, since God is that love, what would it be like to be in love with God? Or what would it be like to know that God's infinitely in love with you? And how do you begin to express that? Like, mm -hmm. how do you begin to, to express even to yourself what's happening to you? That you're realizing God's infinitely in love with you and has been from before the origins of the universe, but now you're starting to taste it for yourself. See? Mm -hmm. And then God's waiting for your response. See, God's waiting for you to say yes to that and to give yourself in love to the love, which is the path that she's marking out for us. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jim. That's getting clearer. <laughs> it's, I think that's a lifelong journey to understand uh, what, you, what you just said so beautifully. Um, so then just to clarify another... I want to add one more thing too about yeah. listening, like spiritual direction. See, I think talk like this makes sense. To the extent we realize we're talking about something that in some way we've experienced. Mm -hmm. That it's not babble, it's not nonsense. <laughs> we realize we're, maybe we've only experienced it fleetingly. Maybe, and even in hearing it, we realize in hearing of it, we desire it. See? Mm -hmm. And so it's a kind of language that puts words to these intimate experiences and how we can learn to deepen them. That's the guidance mm -hmm. she's giving us. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I, I, I resonate with that, Jim, and it's more like a warming of my own heart or, a, or, a, or an excitement or a jump in my heart as you, as you talk about these things. It is. And then also, and we'll see this in the Sixth Mansion and for John of the Cross, then the path then, the heart jumps, but then it feels the pain and not knowing how to consummate the longing that's been quickened within it. Mm -hmm. And that longing is the path. See? That is, I, well, I want to. I wake up inside when I hear it. Mm -hmm. I want it, but I'm powerless by my own powers to consummate 
the longing, God, that you've awakened within me. And she says that is actually the nature of the path itself. Really, what do we do with that? Or what happens to us when we surrender to that? Before we uh, move a little more deeply into Mansion 5, would you mind just uh, going back over what happens to us in Mansion 4, those stages the, the, where we go through the quiet, the absorption? So let's say in the first three mansions, in the third mansion, we can think of it as a psychological spiritual maturity. So there is our life of faith. There's a daily rendezvous with God in prayer, the lexio, we take in God's word. We engage in a meditatio, discursive reflection with God about that. How is this active in my life today? And um, we, we take that, and then the prayer is our desire to be faithful to that. Help me with this as I go through my day. And that's the first three mansions. And it becomes more and more stabilized and habituated as your daily life, your ministry, your, your, how, everything. And that's holiness. It's everything, really. Mm-hmm. And Jen, that's what you d- demonstrate in the Lexio practice with Teresa, right? You d- you take you take in the text Lexio, and then you kind of do your meditation on it. You invite people to into a state of prayer. That's right, because she's saying that's what Jesus does, you know, in the Gospels, that we're kind of drawn to kind of just listen what he just said, <laughs> and the deathless presence of Jesus is saying it to us. See, and God's waiting for it's like that. It's a very personal. Thing. So that's the first three mansions. <clears throat> and by the way, she says there's some people who never have the experiences of the remaining mansions, and they're holier than those some people who have them. She's the, the, the currency of the land is holiness. It's to do God's will, to live by love. Love for God, love for others, love for neighbor, all this. What starts to happen in the fourth mansion, you're praying that way, you're, you're in your process of reflecting. And she says, what starts to happen, and she calls it the quiet. And she says, what the quiet is, she says, it's hearing the master's voice. Like you, It isn't God speaking to us through the scripture or through a teaching. It's in some way you're actually hearing God's own voice. See? Somehow speaking to you or God is in somehow, God's very presence is somehow infusing itself into your very presence to the point that you're kind of held in a kind of a quiet fascination. So you instinctively pause. Your thoughts fall into the background. Your thoughts fall into the background. And and in that state of quiet, like this kind of quiet fascination, because it's very subtle, usually it's very delicate, you enter into a state of absorption. Absorption Mary Froelich phrases it as a semi-voluntary state of quiet fascination, like as we are before a work of art or a sunset. So, so absorption is not union, we're getting at. But it's a state that offers the least resistance to union occurring. Mm-hmm. And then she says you watch very, very closely. So the prayer now becomes kind of obediently following what's happening to you. Is the prayer. So you're not in control at this point in a way. You know, you're kind of into new territory. And she you start to realize, and she starts using this imagery. Instead of, of the she uses the imagery of water, instead of God's grace coming to us from afar, you get the feeling that God's presence is welling up from some sudden place inside of you. 
And instead of reaching it through effort, the effort to meditate, the effort to concentrate, it somehow it's welling up of itself without your effort. And then imagine a basin filling with water, and the basin keeps expanding to accommodate the water. You realize that the love of God flowing into you is transforming you into itself, so your heart is being enlarged to divine proportions. That state, see, that's that fourth mansion state. It's like a dawning. But you're still, the, 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 the first three mansions are still there, and that you still have to constantly choose to renew it when it slips away. You have to renew to open your fidelity to it. You're still there to actively cooperate with this deepening surrender, but the surrender is carrying you qualitatively into this new kind of uh, realm betwixt and between mm -hmm. the, the ego illumined by faith and the dawning of union. And the surrender happens in the ego. So I might notice thoughts arising or emotions that might be getting in the way of of that surrender, and I, I that's where I surrender from, noticing that. And yes, yeah, I think this is the dignity of the ego. The ego, in realizing it's being transcended, must freely choose to die. To, to its own demise and having the final say in who we are, which is really the glory of the ego. See, the ego knows it's, it's, it's in some very deep place beyond itself. And therefore, it has to freely choose to die or to surrender to having the final say, which is an act of trust, really, because it knows by its own finite standards, is myopic or claustrophobic or is constricted compared to this expansiveness that's now drawing us into itself. And that's really, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a battle, it's an arm wrestling thing because we're afraid of it. You know what I mean? We're, we're, it's a, a battle ensues because mm -hmm. we're afraid to die. And also brings up internalized traumas and hurt. Like we're, the, the two start feeling like each other. So wherever we were hurt in the past, we're, how can I be safe and vulnerable at the same time? See, how do I know? Mm -hmm. Yet if I don't let go, see, I can't be released into the fullness, but how do I deal with this internalized uh, holding on so I don't get hurt? And I think that's the intimacy part of, the, part of it anyway, of learning to undergo this. That's why, um, do you, when, when you've taught this before, I've really felt that mansion three is kind of the anchor point. Even if you were to be able to be have moments of later mansions, because the ego, until its final death, is always, you know, is potentially going to be fighting the the death. Um, so what I tell people, what I tell people, what I think helps me, is mm -hmm. I think what you're saying about returning to the third mansion. See, mm -hmm. You you need to check in and see. <clears throat> whether or not your concerns are warranted. Because if you return, notice you're still sitting there. You're still breathing. No one's hurting you. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not losing your ability to think. You're just not maybe necessarily limited to thinking. <clears throat> mm -hmm. You're not losing your ability to choose. As a matter of fact, it's important that you choose. You have a life to live. So you have to check in and see whether that fear is actually <clears throat> warranted because the stature of the self, that's what love of neighbor and love of self is all about. It's yeah. even a heightened regard for the dignity of your body, for the dignity of your mind, not a loss mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. 
It's just, that, it's just that you're no longer living on your own terms. So you're living mm -hmm. on love's terms, which um, are transforming you. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's it's even outside of the the prayer or the meditation when I'm back out in the world and trying to be the loving presence. I might find um, regrounding kind of those questions that are asked in in the third mention are, is important. Yes, and I think that's where the moral part comes in, all of it too. So let's say I'm, I'm infused with this love. I move to go out and realize that everyone around me is infinitely loved by God. And then I realize in my interactions, some of these internalized survival strategies formed in trauma and abandonment kick in, and I'm being distant or removed or dishonest or reactive. Mm -hmm. And then I realize I'm tempted to be down on myself or disheartened. Mm -hmm. Then I have to remind myself that God's infinitely in love with me as precious in my brokenness. This is the good news. Mm -hmm. And I'm to live by the mercy of God who loves me in my wayward journey mm -hmm. and hit the reset button and start over again. And mm -hmm. so we're always, this is always getting sifted back through the habits of our whole life. Yes. That's what makes it real, actually, I think. Yeah, that's really helpful because I think um, there's a desire for perfection or for purity or for, you know, just just getting it right. And so what I take comfort in when you describe the path is that, that that's, we won't achieve that in the this finite reality. And so the path is actually... Um, in our inability to reach the perfection we desire, and that we can come back to God's grace and compassion. Exactly. We can't achieve the infinite love, but the infinite love achieves us and in our inability to achieve it. See? Mm -hmm. So, perfection is really perfection in humility, perfection in gratitude, you know, perfection in mercy, perfection in the surrender is the true perfection. Yes, yes. That's so helpful. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. I just had one last question around Mansion 4 that uh, you describe these events happening in a state of prayer, but um, is it true that they can also happen in moments of, of relationship with others or in, in other ways? Yes, yeah, she says that in the fourth mansion. She says... Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes you're not in prayer at all, like you're having a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden you realize you're in the fourth mansion. That is, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you realize that in this moment with this person, your your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions of the holiness of this moment with this person, or in a quiet hour alone at day's end, or in the darkness of the night. So it's it sort of rises of itself, mm -hmm. even when you're not uh, consciously at prayer it's, it becomes more and more habituated mm -hmm. i know uh, i had an experience when my uh, grandmother was dying and uh she was in hospital and not sleeping well and and uh she'd she'd been someone who meditated and did yoga and but she was very anxious and not sleeping well and afraid she had to have a surgery and um i was sitting next to her and she said to me, you know, I'm afraid I won't sleep tonight and I won't be at my best for the surgery tomorrow. And I remember um, like this, something absolutely not coming from me, but something coming through me for her. 
And I said to her, well, Nan, you're, you're a, a great meditator. Why, do, why don't we meditate together? And as, I, as she, she nodded her head and I said, um, you know, I see this beautiful golden light surrounding you and covering you and it seems so warm and trustworthy and beautiful and I wonder if you can get a sense of that um, inside of you and uh, I just I don't know where that came from and and it was hard to talk about afterwards but um, when I went in the next morning prior to the surgery um, my grandmother burst into tears when she saw me and she said you know I had the best night's sleep. I had the best night's sleep ever. And, uh, and she said I'm, I wasn't, she wasn't feeling anxious about the surgery. You know what I think this comes up to a lot? And I think this came up for Teresa when she was writing The Interior Castle. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I, and I've had this experience too. I work with people in therapy who are training to do hospice work. And they were so nervous about being with their first dying person. And always they'd come back in a week later and when they were next to the bed with the family members around, it was given to them to mm. say that somehow when a friend is hurting and you say something that helps and you don't know how you knew how to say it. Yeah. So a lot of this this mansion business is learning how to be more and more habitually receptive and open to the influx of those things that don't come from you but through you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the artist. Where does beauty come from from the artist or for the violinist, whatever, it's, it's channeling because you're an open, uh, you know, it uses you to fulfill its own purposes and it just speaks. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to trust that and go with that and be more open to that, that's how you, by your fruit you shall know them. You start to see a heightened capacity for this flow of words that are coming through you and not from you as, as mm-hmm. grace. Yeah. And how to how to work out what's what's trustworthy and and what's um what's not in terms of those kind of very unique and rare experiences yeah exactly and i think sometimes what's trustworthy is so disarmingly simple it was right there but sometimes by the ego it might not be apparent at first because it's the thing we don't want to say you know it's the thing that we we don't want to be it's just so it takes a lot of discernment and the artistry of fidelity and learning how to listen to ourselves and stay open. And it's the journey, you know. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jim. We're going a little uh, bit deeper into Mansion 5 now. You you said in the uh, podcast about Mansion 5 that the reflective self goes into a deep sleep. And so I wondered um, when we have this kind of Mansion 5 event, are we becoming unconscious? Is that... Are we passing out? This is a, it'd be good to say this too with all these mystics, to understand the deeper we get, it's understandable that we might feel the mystics talking about things we might not have experienced yet. Mm -hmm. But it's nice just to sit with them. And as we listen, maybe we have experienced them, but no one helped us to be consciously aware of what was happening to us. Mm -hmm. So one way to put it is, is this. Let's say that our our ultimate destiny is infinite union with the infinite. We're awakened to it in our finite consciousness, awakened by faith. As it gets deeper, 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 
The finite self illumined by faith comes to the edges of itself, which in being finite, it can't be the basis for the consummation of that union. <laughs> and so it ceases. It kind of ceases. It goes into a, into a kind of, it disappears from itself in reflective consciousness. Now, when it, it, it returns to consciousness, what happened when you weren't there? She says, feels like you could have been asleep. It's like a sleep. And the way you know it isn't, you weren't asleep is discerning the ways you're different in the aftermath of that. Because in the seventh mansion, she's saying what happens in a way is that the, that innermost oneness with you, hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe, is momentarily being actualized, standing free and clear. See? Like this. And um, uh, so when, when you then return back from that communion, from that mm -hmm. communion, then... The, the you that was so transcended discerns the significance of what happened because of the changes it can see. That's how you, can, that's how you discern it. And that's what she walks through then. She helps us to understand that. Mm. She is so clever with her use of the silkworm and the butterfly example. It's just so brilliant. Yeah, because the, the, um, when the butterfly... For the, in other words, the I put it in the talk that I gave to, to is a, a butterfly is not a caterpillar with wings. It wouldn't get off the ground. It, it, so when it spins its cocoon, it disappears from view, so we can't mm -hmm. see it, and then it emerges as a butterfly. In other words, it's it's the it's the metamorphosis of your very subjectivity. It undergoes an utter metamorphosis. So when you emerge as this butterfly. So she says, in the, in the, in the moment of uh, union, this fleeting union, it's going to become habitual in the sixth mansion, but in this fleeting fullness of union, you disappear from yourself. But then what you emerge as is one, a conviction that you were in God and God was within you. It's a conviction in your heart. You can't explain it, but it's a conviction in your heart. Two, a new desire to only do God's will. And thirdly, that you're a butterfly with tattered wings. That is, this is not the beloved. This is that is having tasted infinite union with the infinite beloved. Everything less than infinite union with the infinite beloved is infinitely less than what my heart will be fulfilled by. This is not the beloved. This is not the beloved. This is not the beloved. See? And yet she says you've never been more at peace in your whole life. Because if you accept that it's infinitely less than the beloved, you experience the beloved shining through the simplest of things. Mm. It, it's, when you try to own it at the level where you can have it, you fall back mm -hmm. into what's less than. Mm -hmm. But when you accept that it's infinitely less than the infinite, to that deep acceptance, the infinity of it, and it's nothing without God, shines into your heart. Like everything is holy or everything deserves to be deeply respected or even reverenced, you know, mm -hmm. like that. I think it's like that, really. Yeah. I, I'm surprised to hear you talk about the peace because um, in that description of, you know, the, the longing, the unsatisfied longing, 
it it that didn't sound so peaceful but but you're saying there's something deeper going on that that helps us see god more clearly at the so we we might we might feel the longing the lack of um the infinite presence and that invites us into seeing it yeah, where exactly. it does exist and how it does exist yeah yeah that that I mean, maybe in a moment I can look back and remember, maybe not. But somewhere along the line, something happened to me. And it's put me in this state, so hard to talk about, see, of the not-enoughness of everything, including myself. <laughs> like no landing place. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, see, mm. except in the bosom of God. See. And so there's no rest for me except resting in the eternal, resting in me, and so on. Yet, by, by accepting this unexplainable thing that's happened to me, like a pilgrim of the absolute kind of roaming about, I've never been more at peace before in my whole life because it amazes me. See? I'm just amazed. There's something that I can't explain. It's boundaryless and vast in all directions. When I turn to have it, it goes away. But it shines out intimately from, from here, there, everywhere. I think it's kind of like that in a way. I love the way she talks about the uh, the house the caterpillar builds as uh, the house is like our life in Christ. And I wondered if you just reflect on that a little bit. Uh, let's say our house is our life. And let's say God gives us our life. And when, when we, we're given our life, we think we're given our life to have our life. Mm. And, and at a certain level, that's important in terms of the ego. We have to develop skills and talents and, you know, that's real. But when we push that too far, see, so when Jesus says he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So you, you have your life. But then you, you begin to realize like you can't love and live on your own terms. See, you were, you were given your life to lose your life by surrendering yourself over to what love is asking out of you. And therefore, your house is the house you were given to lose. I mean, given to give up is something you owned, that you don't belong to yourself. You know, you belong to God and you belong to love. And so you, you're dispossessed. So you're dispossessed by love, which is a heightened sense of authenticity in your life through love. Mm. And that Christ is the, is the transformative engine kind of of that. Christ is the revelation of the fullness of what's happening to us. Mm. For me to live is Christ. And so we see in Christ and the fullness of what's happening to us. You can also see the value of Teresa and these mystics uh, on uh, her, her ability. Imagine having her for a spiritual director. And she's directing us now as we talk about this. Yes, it's, yes. So, so, it's so luminous and it's so you know, uh, disarmingly simple and, and, and rich. Yes. And we realize that a lot of it is we haven't had anyone to sit with we don't live in a society that cultivates or invites us yes. to this. And so we've, so the contemplative church, the living school, all this, the, the really it's, it's an ongoing lineage 
of this um, kind of mystical Christ consciousness in the world and realizing yeah. it's our turn, it's happening to us. And we're in the midst of it. And that's so, yeah. Well, I remember when that experience happened to me with my grandmother, there was no one I could talk to that could really help me understand it or really even um, celebrate it with me. And I tell it on this podcast because I'm hoping <laughs> people here might understand. Yeah, and that in sharing it, um, people might also feel more confident about those kind of experiences they've had themselves. So imagine we're having a recovery meeting for uh, recovering would-be mystics. <laughs> and so when we share our story, recovery, recovery, strength, and hope, like an AA, mm -hmm. when we share a little story like that, other people in the room know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because in an utterly unique way, they also have had their own moment. So how do we learn to habituate our faith, I see, not to play the cynic, how to have faith in that, and how can I learn to habituate that sensitivity that was given to me? And uh, what's the path along which that might happen to me? I will say, um, just my experience today in sharing that story, I, I feel very deeply in my being still that connection to that light and my, my grandmother embodied in it. And she's she's been dead now for, for a number of years, but just I still feel that deep connection the gift of that moment of so deeply connecting to her and I still feel that warmth and that glow and that safety of what she was going through. See, and that's what makes our conversation here with Teresa to be a contemplative prayer. See? In other words, again, like Michael Sell's book, The Mystical Language of Unsaying. So it's not a language that speaks of this. But it's a language that speaks of it in a way we experience what's being spoken of. Mm. It's a language that actually brings us into this state and open how could I be even more habitually grounded, even more faithful, even more. I think it's like that. Yes. I, um, I loved in the podcast when you talked about the caterpillar going on the journey of being metamorphosized and you, you said the ca the caterpillar was you know planning buying the journal getting <laughs> getting going to a retreat um and then the trick is that the the part that was going to kind of own and um go on tour with the the glory of the being metamorphosized is the first part to die and what, what, how do you relate that to to us in our journey you know, in, in terms of... See, how, how I put it for Teresa would tell us that all these mystics is that... So the mystic is... So we aspire to this. I mean, when we, well, we should. See? But we can't help but think of it in terms of the ego aspiring to it. Doesn't realize it's going to be transcended in, you know, the... <laughs> and, um, and so then the mystic isn't someone who says, listen to what happened to me. Listen to what I've experienced. The mystic is the one who says, look what love has done to me. Mm. There's nobody left. Thomas Merton said, I'm blown down the street like leaves scattered in all directions. See, do I even have a life? Like, pardon me, I don't speak English. I can bear witness to it. But I don't bear witness to what I have. I bear witness to what I'm called to share happened to me, that by sharing it, it might happen to you. Mm. And it's just a very different feeling. Yes, yeah, I'm sensing into it. it it's not like a, 
are rising up and kind of standing above and I've I know this, I've done this, I've it's it's actually a much more humble kind of it is. something was done to me and you know, I'm trying to find the words to describe it. Yeah, and also another image of it might be <clears throat> The more deeply I descend in being humbled, that is, I'm powerless in my meditation, I don't know how to go on. The more deeply I'm humbled, the more I discover the abyss-like depths of God welling up and giving itself to me in and as my intimately accepted powerlessness. See, that's what's so surprising about it. As low as we went, the Lao Tzu talks about the Tao like water. He said, the Tao is like water. It descends into the lowest places to give life to everything. Mm. And so the lower we go, we discover the depths of our nothingness, drops down into and opens out on the bottomless abyss of this love welling up and giving itself to us in the very nothingness in which we didn't know what to make of anything. See? Mm -hmm. And then it's carrying us along and, and, and transforming us into mm -hmm. itself. It's, it's very much like that, I think. There was another phrase that I'd never heard um, that really, I mean, when you said it, I, that you said, um, resurrection is not the resuscitation of a corpse. I'd never heard that. And it really struck me, a very powerful thing to say. What, 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 on the flip side of that, so if resurrection is not the resuscitation of a corpse, how, how would you say it? Yeah. It's... Um See, it isn't as if, let's say I'm still in my ego self, illumined by faith. And let's say I believe I hear about the mystery of eternal life. And let's say I hear about the mystery of the resurrection, this, this mythic language of the final resurrection. The, the mystery of the final resurrection is the ultimate, which is really the ultimate victory of love over all forms of suffering and death. Resurrection. I'll be I'll be resuscitated into this life living here in Marina del Rey, you know, with my library, <laughs> walking around. What am I going to have for lunch? I'm, I'm resurrected. I'm not resuscitated. I'm not brought back to this. Rather, this is broken wide open and transformed into the boundarylessness of God's own life, in which. The eternality of this daily life will live on and on and on that way in God. So the resurrection is to be born again, see? Amazing grace. Once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. It's not resuscitating back to something. Rather, it's being carried forward into a boundaryless state utterly beyond what we in our still unawakened state could scarcely even begin to imagine. It's more like that, yeah. And then there was, what she's saying is the resurrection then becomes an event in consciousness, which is mystical union. That even while still on this earth, we, we can taste and live directly the deathless life of God and you know, our nothingness without God. Can you describe a little bit more about um, why, does she, why does she add that the butterfly has tattered wings? What's, what's, what's that Pointing to, I'll, I'll make it personal. You know, I, I'm uh, I'm pleased we can give these do these talks, and I'm pleased that I'm writing six hours a day on my healing book, and I'm pleased that my daughters visit me on weekends and so on. But with Maureen dead at seventy-seven years old, I barely get by. 
Mm. Barely get by. And I'm falling apart here, unraveling. And uh, um, just keeping up with things is too much for me. But if I accept it's too much for me, because I'm old, you know, I'm old. And uh, I'm not to live on my own terms. I don't have to keep up with anything. So I feel like a butterfly with tattered wings. See, just trying to share a few things before I disappear that might be helpful to somebody. <laughs> I don't know. And so I, I think anytime we commit ourselves, to any anyone who commits himself to being a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, or they deeply commit themselves to teaching little children, we're working with people in hospitals, we're, anytime we're of service to a community, isn't it true that it asks of us more than we're able to comfortably give? Isn't that true? We're, we're always in the very gift of it all. We're trying to maintain ourselves, you know, and and uh, and acknowledging the limits of ourself. Otherwise, it's hubris. Mm-hmm. I have to. Sometimes I have to back off. I can't do it. I have to. I have to. It's hubris. I'm trying to live up to your expectations of what I should do, an utter disregard for how real my limitations are. Then I honor my limitations and step back into it again and then re- reassert myself again in the classroom or the hospital or a psychotherapy office or changing the diaper or uh, mm-hmm. watering the lawn. You know. Does that make sense in a way it's like that? I think we're all, when we live deeply and love deeply, we're always taken out beyond the edges of what we're comfortably able to do. Mm-hmm. And we have to humbly stay grounded in that and we're transformed at the crest of the wave. At that. And to me, that's, that's being a butterfly with tattered wings. That's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that, Jim. And so the, and the tatterings really, and this is Teresa, the, the foundation of her entire teaching is in relation to love, the, the tatterings in, in relation to, to, to experience, to give, to be the love that's changing me. I, I realize I, I I have tattered wings. It is, and I think it's saying Paul like the thorn in the flesh. Ever thought I ask God to remove it, and God said, "Leave it there," because the place where you still get reactive, the place where you're not able to live up to what you should be, is your teacher. It reminds you you're not exempt from the frailty of the human condition that God's infinitely in love with, and through which you touch and people by accepting it yourself. And yeah. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, and then she, she, she says in the end, see, with mystical union, see, even the butterfly must die. Mm. Because even that transformed self in love, the, the, in divine union, see, becomes non distinct from the infinite mystery of God. So she moves into the sixth, seventh mansion. You see, even the butterfly dies. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the butterfly can die when you're still here. See, I'm impoverished, but I'm impoverished no more. I'm limited, but I'm limitless everywhere in all directions. See? Mm. And there are ways that becomes paradoxically true for a person. Wow. What do you think uh, we can learn from the fifth mansion if we've never entered it? You know, like listening, listening to you to talk about it, uh, reading Teresa, but it's it's not something that we've had had the experience of that that has. What, what can we learn from? continuing on to deepen our understanding of the mansion. You know, I, I think that um, 
one in the spiritual order, what's given to one of us belongs to all of us. Mm. See, really? And so it's given to these people who are graced in having come to this. In our interconnectedness, it's given to all of us, because it's us. I think another, another grace is that if I calibrate my heart to a fine enough scale, I can be, see, I think of it as incremental realizations of infinite generosity. See, that I realize if I calibrate my heart to a fine enough scale, I can begin to discern in the delicacy of my own unfolding realizations, the stirrings of this very oneness. Because I also know what it's like to have disappeared from my own finite gaze. I know, I know what it's like to have a moment in which I disappeared from myself in reflective consciousness, either through birth or death or joy or whatever. And I know what it's like to have come out the other side and gotten that taste of something in a metamorphosized state that was given to me like that. So we can see there's like echoes or variations or reverberations with this. So she's always returning us back to where we are and our own, because that's what counts mm -hmm. on this trajectory or this learning curve. And she lays bare, or opens for us what's possible. It may already be closer than we realize. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't be listening to these talks with any sense of clear. We would have turned out along. So the very fact this isn't gibberish mm -hmm. means somehow we already know this because we only recognize what we know. So the very fact we're drawn to it bears witness that it's already happening to us. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it, you know what I mean? It's subtle, intimate, delicate. It's like that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, maybe we'll all have a moment where we disappear from ourselves listening to the fifth mansion. <laughs> we might. And by the way, I, I think the reading of the, the, these mystics can be that way. You know, you read it, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It so speaks to everything in you. There's a certain place at mid-sentence, you disappear from your ability to read the next sentence. Mm. And you, when you turn a second later or 10 minutes later, the very act of reading it was itself the taste of this little thing that that illumined you midway. It's spiritual communication, I think. Thank you, Jim. Well, before we end, uh, I just want to honor what you shared about Maureen and honor Maureen's beautiful life. And um, thank you for continuing on with the podcast with, with all you've been yes. through. And, 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 and thank you. And just looking ahead to the Sixth Mansion, too. Let's say the apophatic way, the apophatic part of the hidden part. The cataphatic way is where this starts happening while you're awake. That is, you don't disappear. It rarely is somehow the divinity of manifested life itself. So it starts habitually happening to you. You know why? That's where we're kind of headed. You kind of disappear apophatically. You're transformed in that that opens out upon deeper layered deaths ahead in which it starts happening all the time leading toward the seventh mansion thank you a little uh a little teaser for, <laughs> for mansion six <laughs> little teaser yeah. well tune in <laughs> tune in next week for the next exciting episode well thank you for today jim and we, we look forward to traveling through mansion six with you and um it's been been wonderful hearing 
your thoughts today a gift. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practising with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.